Hi, welcome everybody. This is Tom Hayes with Hedge Fund Tips, and we are doing our weekly video cast and podcast for the week ending January 31st, 2020. This is our 15th weekly video cast, Time Flies, and fifth podcast. So, welcome. And this week we're going to start out with I'd like to thank uh, Olivia Balsamo, Jennifer. Rogers, Miles Ugland, and Heidi Chung for having me on the show on Monday, the final round on Yahoo Finance TV. So if you want to check that out, we talked about earnings, we talked about energy, we talked about coronavirus. Uh, you can find that on the site under uh, right here under popular posts. And uh, quick for Wednesday, February 5th, I will be on Yahoo Finance TV again on a different show at 10 a.m. with Julie Hyman and Adam Shapiro. So please tune in if you're around and that should be a lot of fun. So now on to the week's business. Uh, our core article was the Great Wall of Worry stock market and sentiment results. And we went into a number of factors in this article, starting off with just when you thought the coast was clear. You know, the, the Fed did an about face in summer 2019, began accommodative policy after two and a half years of tightening. The uh, Trump administration completed two phenomenal trade deals, the phase one with China and the USMCA. And earnings on track for 2020, double digit earnings growth after two years of flat growth. So everything was headed in the right direction and nothing left to worry about. And of course, for those of you who have been around markets long enough, uh, this time it was some Chinese bat virus pops out of nowhere and sends everyone into a panic. So we're going to talk about some of the facts. I don't want to belittle it. It's obviously serious and, and very serious for, for people that are affected by it uh, directly. Um, but uh, we went through some of the facts at the time. Uh, the deaths were at 170. I think they're up to 200 or so, uh, a little more than that. And so uh, more cases of the coronavirus, but less deaths. So in 2003, we had SARS, which had 8,100 people who were exposed, but 774 died. And the common flu that we have every single year in the U.S., uh, yields, just to put it in perspective, about 9 million to 45 million people sick, 140,000 to 810,000 hospitalizations, and 12,000 to 61,000 deaths per year since 2010. So uh, obviously we're comparing apples to oranges here, but we, we do want to put it in perspective. Uh, the other thing we're finding with the coronavirus is, uh, like the flu, it's uh, mostly fatal for very old people or people with uh, pre-existing health conditions or very young people, similar to the flu. Many people who are getting coronavirus, which is very positive, are actually healing on their own. Uh, that's, that's good news, but uh, obviously something needed that needs to be taken seriously, and we're going to talk about some things that are developing which are, are promising. What does the stock market do in these type of situations? Well, we've had 12 epidemics since 1981. The average return of the S&P 500 one month out was uh, just under a half a percent, 44 basis points. Uh, the average return of the S&P 500 three months out was 3.08%. And the average return of the S&P six months out was 
8.5%. So to get to that average, you have some negative uh, instances, but uh, on balance, the weight is positive and, and that's where you get these type of outcomes. So uh, more likely than not, not the end of the world. And uh, if it is, you have nothing to worry about anyway. So um, the next point is that, um, so we talked a little bit about it on the show on Monday. You can check that out here. A few things about what's going right. So what 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 is there to be positive about with the developments over the week? And this was written, you know, yesterday morning. It's already uh, many things have happened. But the key thing, first off, the Chinese government moves swiftly. Secondly, they've been able to map the genome. That puts them orders of magnitude ahead of where they could be in 2003 at this point in the cycle. Uh, the third thing that was really interesting, and this is starting to get some traction now, this gentleman named Wang Guangfa, who is the leader of the Peking, Uni Peking University First Hospital's Pulmonary and Critical Care, contracted the virus himself um, as a member of the national expert team when he was dispatched to Wuhan. And the HIV drug, the AbV drug, Caltera, he used and it killed his disease. So right now uh, they're running tests on this to make sure it, the good news, it's already approved for human use. So it could probably get out to the public fast, but what they're trying to do very, very quickly is to test it on enough humans to make sure it's safe for everyone. The worry is it lowers the white blood cell count a bit, but on balance, there's a light at the end of the tunnel here. And, it, and that's not the only drug uh, there were quite a few reports this week, uh, besides the fact that many people are healing on their own. Uh, apparently, there are other drugs, remdesivir, chloroquine, and ritovenir. Um, they're used for different illnesses. Those are showing... Uh, very effective, fairly effective on coronavirus at the cellular level. So here are those three drugs. Uh, there are other drugs also. Uh, we already covered the HIV drugs, which was um, the Alluvia Caltera. That's the brand name for Lopinavir and Ritonavir, which are again are the HIV drugs uh, that helped with SARS and MERS coronaviruses. And then there was an article here, I don't know if this is credible, but uh, the Russian government apparently feels that they've uh, found a solution and they're giving ribavirin uh, as well as the two drugs we mentioned as well as interferon beta 1b to their hospitals and those drugs are used for hep c hiv and ms so they're all antivirals these are in the field this is the doctor who was cured from the abv hiv drug uh, that we discussed so things are in the works they just can't wholesale it out um, I, they're using it on small scale as compassionate drugs for people who you know late in the process and don't look good but I think that I don't know how long it'll take them, if it's days or weeks, to be able to say, hey, anyone that is in bad shape that doesn't look like they're going to heal on their own, we can give them these and they're okay. Once that happens, then 
uh, it should wind down relatively quickly. We just don't know when. So what I would say for anyone who's maybe aggressively short or aggressively hedged, you know, if you're in that position and you wake up one morning and they say we've approved this for humans and we're finding that it works, it's game over. I mean, you know, everything's going to rebound very, very quickly. Uh, and there are a lot of different ways to play it. So the, uh, we'll talk about some of the different sectors as we go through here. But I would say the, the, the big theme of the week is that there are drugs being tested and in use that are working. The question is how fast can the governments approve wholesale for any and every person who is in rough shape that's not healing on their own to take it. And I think they're just being careful, make sure it's 100% good, make sure they, they can manage the white blood cell counts for some of the different drugs and uh, should be off to the races in with positive news for that. So uh, uh, stay tuned, I guess is the point. Next is the Fed. Um, in last week's video cast, I talked about a little concern that they were uh, vocalizing an interest in tapering down the liquidity expansion that they started in August. And what instead we got at the Fed meeting this week was uh, they pushed the date back just like they did in December. They said that they were going to wind down liquidity in January. They pushed it out. Uh, they were supposed to start tapering in uh, March, and now they pushed it out into sometime in Q2. And instead of emphasizing the reduction of the liquidity program. Instead, they emphasize their displeasure with inflation chronically running below 2%, which means for the time being, the Fed is still a tailwind. And I've discussed several times in the last couple of weeks that Powell in December, his December meeting didn't get much coverage, but because it was tariff week with the phase one, he basically laid out this case that there are millions of people who haven't benefited from the recovery because they're outside the labor force and they're no longer counted. They stopped looking for work. They're, um, uh, it's not depressed workers, but um, discouraged workers is basically what it is. And the only way to get them back into the labor force is to get some wage inflation, run, run, wage inflation running a bit hot and that's really the goal of what he's done with the three cuts, uh, obviously reverse course and adding liquidity about 400 billion since August. Um, and basically by continuing the liquidity expansion, uh, the expectation is that wages will increase and the labor force participation rate actually dropped from 67% uh, before the crisis to 63% at the bottom, and it's ticked up quite a bit. But his goal is to, you know, get it, if you can get it up to 65%, with now all the millennials coming along, people say, well, the population is getting older, but that's not entirely true. Yes, you have 80 million baby boomers. Gen X, my generation, was very small. That's what caused this aging bubble, 65 million people, and slowed down growth for uh, a decade and a half from 2000 to 2015 because there was a dearth of housing product, uh, housing formation relative to historical norms. When you drop from 80 million to 65 million people, that's what happens. That's why central bank could print $10 trillion and not get inflation. But now the millennials are actually getting to the point 
where they're starting later because they have more education and more student loans, et cetera, and they grow up a little bit later and they're going to live longer so they can start later in life. And you can have babies later now with medicine and everything else. Um, but they're 85 million people. So, um, so that, that's going to really create a situation where we can get up to 65% labor force participation rate by and even beyond maybe back to 67 and maybe above over time. But in the short term, you know, moving up another point or so would be another couple million jobs, which would just get this economy humming. Um, and, you know, when when the administration talks about 3% and 4% growth possibilities down the road, that's what it's going to take. So Chair Powell's interest is in really helping those people who haven't been helped through this recovery. And he's going to have to keep his foot on the gas to do that because from for two and a half years straight, the Fed went on a tightening rampage. So they raised rates nine consecutive times in a row and they did $785 billion of quantitative tightening. Put that in perspective, they've only unwound less than 50% of that, okay? So they've done three cuts of nine, and they've increased liquidity by 410, uh, 400 billion of 785 billion of tightening. So they're basically, give or take, less than half of the way there if they want to get full steam ahead, create a couple million more jobs, and get inflation symmetrically above 2% over time, which they've struggled with chronically. And uh, so, so I see them potentially uh, certainly into Q2, but probably beyond because as they see their ability to bring more people back into the labor force, so long as inflation stays subdued, and subdued could mean going up to two and a half, 2.8% just to offset what's been growth to get to to around a 2% uh, mean, uh, then that's what they'll do. So uh, I think the Fed here is going to remain a tailwind. They certainly postured that way this week, which was better than expected. And um, the other thing that was interesting was the Democrats called for a $760 billion infrastructure plan, fiscal stimulus early in the week. And we're gonna start to see much more of that. So the last six months theme globally has been central banks reversing course from uh, shrinking balance sheets, tightening policy to more accommodative stance, cuts um, and some increased uh, uh, balance sheet asset purchasing. Uh, and now they recognize that in order to get full growth humming and, and really kickstart the global economy in a serious way, uh, fiscal stimulus is going to be the name of the game. So, uh, and maybe this coronavirus will be the impetus to say, we've got to, you know, it's now or never, let's go. Uh, so uh, this was promising from, uh, from the Democratic side and uh, a very good thing to see. Uh, sentiment this week, uh, probably attributable to the coronavirus, probably attributable to being overbought after a monster run off the August bottom. We were up eight. We were up 18% on the S&P, 22% on the Nasdaq, and you know, for some odd months. So this was really a good excuse to consolidate some of the and digest some of those massive quick gains, the melt up into year end that that uh, we discussed in August and September, and. 
so you can see here the bullish percent came down. Uh, it's unclear whether this will stay pinned and will recover and go back up or if it has to go back all the way down and shake some people out. Um, we'll see what happens with the drugs. I think right now everyone's focused on that. Uh, fear and greed gates confirm that. It got to a more normalized level. And, but the active investment managers are still exposed to equities. And, and like we've shown historically, that can stay pinned for quite a while uh, once you get going. So that is uh, the theme of the week and of the article has been consistent over the last few weeks. We've been trimming materially off sectors that ran huge from August through um through January, and we've been reallocating to laggard sectors that hadn't yet performed like energy and a few others. And we're gonna talk a little bit about energy here. I think I'm gonna leave a more comprehensive report on energy for next week, because we've covered quite a bit on it in, in the recent weeks, but we started building long-term positions in uh, October, November, and uh, December troughs. And we uh, did a meaningful amount of adding uh, today and late this week. So, so we're pretty excited about that. And we're going to tell you, tell you uh, generally why. Um, as we shift gears here, let's, let's go through our different sector earnings. And then we'll finish off with a little bit of general earnings and energy. Um, as we do every week, we take the top 30 weights from many sectors. In this case, it's the Investors Business Daily Top 50 Growth Index. The ETF is called FFTY is the ticker. It's just high growth stocks, so I like to see how that uh, group is performing. And in the last 60 days, earnings estimates have increased by about a half a percent for the top 30 weights of the IBD 50. So that's constructive. Small cap Russell 2000 top 30 weights uh, in the last 60 days, earnings estimates for 2020 have climbed over a half a percent, about 60 basis points. So that's constructive estimates going up. Biotech we did today. Uh, top 30 weights of the IBB, this one really jumped. In the last 60 days, earnings estimates are up 2.06% in the last six, 60 days, so that's really constructive. And uh, and you may get a pop, by the way, depending on which of these five or six drugs uh, gets the green light, if not all of them. But um, uh, certainly there's going to be demand for antivirals, whether it's AbbVie, Gilead, Regeneron. Uh, they're all in this index. And then we also did this week, earlier this week, basic materials. So unlike the growth stocks, the small cap stocks and the biotech stocks, the estimates for materials uh, came down 1.76% uh, in the last 60 days. That's 2020 earnings estimates. Uh, as for the general S&P 500, uh, energy is still expected to be the number one growth sector for 2020, coming in at 23.7% earnings growth, uh, up from 21.4 just a couple of weeks ago. And uh, that's in spite of all the headwinds of the uh, global demand worries with coronavirus and China shutting down for a while. What was also interesting is that uh, the growth rate for 2020 for the S&P 500 dropped for a good reason. So the earnings power of the S&P 500 went up uh, about 10 cents from 177.41 to 177.51. So that's good. 
but the growth rate dropped from 9.5 to 9.1. And why is that? It's because uh, earnings for Q4, which were expected to come in at negative 1.6, are now looking like they're going to come in positive, which is would be normal. Uh, usually you get about 3.5% improvement over the earnings season. So by increasing the earnings for 2019, the growth rate, even though the actual earnings is higher, the growth rate comes down a little bit. Um, so, but all in all, the net net is earnings power for 2020 is up 10 cents and earnings power for 2019 is coming in better than expected. So that's earnings generally. Um, the other thing that I wanted to say quickly about um, earnings is that in December, if you recall a few weeks back, we covered the sentiment surveys of the CEOs and CFOs of uh, Fortune 5 uh, public companies, and it was at a low not seen since um Early 2009, when the market bottomed right before the biggest bull market in, in a long time. And also in 2002, it got that low uh, before uh, we basically bottomed 2002, 2003, and then had a big run into 2007. So generally, CEO and CFO pessimism gets that high right before a rally, not right before a crash. Uh, usually, the sentiment's very high before a crash. And um, so the phase one deal was signed about a week after that uh, Duke survey was covered. And we're starting to see guidance improvement here in the first part of earnings season is better than average, less negative guidance uh, in spite now hearing coronavirus all the time on the, on the conference calls. Um, so we're we're trading over 18 18.2 times as of today forward earnings which is high the 5 year average is 16.7 uh so we're a little high we need some more earnings power and that can come from guidance it can come from a weakened dollar obviously you're not going to get that until the coronavirus calms down because there's a bid for safety assets like the US dollar people buy the dollar so they can buy treasuries uh but that'll calm down when it calms down and why it could calm down is in this month's global fund manager survey, uh, managers felt 53% of managers felt that the US dollar was overvalued. Last time the read got that high was uh, only happened two other times. 2002, the dollar fell 40% after that. Now, <laughs> I doubt the dollar is going to fall 40%, but even if it just comes in a little bit from last year, year-on-year uh, -year comps, that's going to help S&P earnings because 40 to 50% of S&P revenue comes from abroad. Uh, so you could see that uh, once this short-term um, volatility calms down. And then lastly, uh, where you could get a huge bump, you know, we're talking about 9, 9.5% earnings growth. If Boeing gets back online quicker than expected, which uh, we saw a recent announcement that looked better than expected before the coronavirus about a week ago, that the FAA was liking what they were hearing from Boeing. But Boeing has lost about $5.77 of earnings power just in the last 60 days, never mind what was already expected. So if they get going, certainly by the summer, but if they actually get going better than expected. That 577 goes right on top of the 177.51, uh, 
and that would actually take earnings growth up over 13 percent uh, the last time that we were in that ballpark was 2017, 2016 to 17, we had 11% earnings growth and the S&P rallied 37% in four and a half quarters. So we're at, you know, we're over nine, that's great, close to double digit, but boy, if Boeing gets back, that can change earnings overnight. I mean, we could, we could definitely see a huge bump up to, you know, 12, 13, 14%, and then, uh, then we're trading too cheap. So that's earnings in general. And then a quick update on the energy. Halima Croft was on CNBC today. I thought it was interesting because there was an article. She's, uh, she's an analyst, I think, at RBC, former CIA uh, agent, I guess. Um, anyway, so she's, she's pretty good on, on energy for sure. And I'd seen the article earlier this week that they were OPEC wanted to move the meeting up from March to early February because of the coronavirus and they want to keep prices up. Uh, and then Halima Croft came on late this afternoon and said that she was hearing that it might the meeting might even be as quick as next week. And they're obviously not going to pull a meeting forward five or six weeks without doing a cut. And that would be an unexpected cut. Uh, you take that with uh, the rig count being down 60% off the October 14 highs. We lost, uh, I think, 276 in the last 12 months. We lost another four this week. Eventually, that supply demand equation kicks in. The other thing that's not being focused on because of the coronavirus and everyone's focused on China is Libya has been offline for two weeks. That's over a million barrels a day. They can't just turn the spigots back on. It takes a long time to ramp up, even if they uh, uh, fix things over there tomorrow, which it doesn't look like things are going to resolve anytime soon. Venezuela has got its problems. So... Uh, once people can get comfort that gro global growth is not going to be uh, meaning or meaningfully impaired for the long term from the short term coronavirus, uh, I think you're going to see a big change in the supply demand expectations for energy in 2020. And then we also move into um, a material period of seasonality. Um, that I didn't pull this up. I'm going to pull it up here. Just the general pattern of how the sector performs. It's important you see this chart. Uh, it's basically the average of the performance of the sector over the last um, 20 years ending... Oh, wow, just a few weeks ago. So basically, January to early February are the weakest parts of the year for the energy sector that are negative, and the strongest part is from early February to late April. That's when the energy sector stocks and energy itself has the biggest price appreciation on average over the year. So we're getting right into this period, which is why we were adding pretty uh, nicely today. Uh, uh, to our long-term position. And, um, you know, we've covered kind of the story here. We, we talked about the sector going from worst to first in 2020 with earnings power. If you want to check out our thesis, uh, as I said, we've been building this since uh, in October, November, and December periods uh, on weakness. And just like we did this week, uh, the J-Paul 
Getty energy stock market and sentiment results, you just go to the right side of the website here and just put Getty in the search bar and it'll pull right up. Um, and what's important about this article, it goes through the thesis, but then it also covers all the articles um, from October and November and a great article from the Financial Times that Jennifer Ablin did on the 7th uh, that she asked me for a quote. So you can go through the whole thing if you have interest in the sector and just to understand why we're overweight uh, energy relative to the benchmark, which is now down to 4.2%. It's at an historic low. Um, so it doesn't take much to get overweight. Uh, the other aspects, so you've got Libya, you've got rig countdown, you've got the OPEC meeting potentially moving up, you've got the earnings power is the top earnings uh, growth for 2020, and, uh, and Libya offline. So basically that's the whole story for this week. Hope you found it helpful. Uh, let's keep the people who are uh, struggling and dealing with this, especially in China, in our thoughts and prayers for the coming week. And hopefully one of these drugs will pop and they'll approve it and we can put this, put this behind us and move on. Uh, so with that said, we'll see you back here same time, same place and have a great week.